you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 10 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Topman, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. On last week's show, we had a wonderful discussion, Mark, with Sarah Phelan, an old colleague of yours. I think you Absolutely. dealt with Sarah a little I, I, bit, did you? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Okay, very good. Well, she was brilliant and she's the okay. chairperson of the Bar Council, as everybody knows. We talked about her plans for the next two years and it's, it's just a great interview. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. It's really, really good. Uh, Well, today we are joining you from the beautiful environs of University College Cork. Mark, look out the window. Look at all the students running around. Isn't it perfect? It's great. And we're going to be talking to Professor Ursula Kilkelly, who is the head of the College of Business and Law in UCC. She's a leading expert in the area of children's rights and in that capacity serves as chairperson of Oberstown Detention School, the country's leading facility for juvenile detention. We're going to talk to her about life in UCC as well as her busy, active professional life outside of the campus. Uh, But first, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website. To start with, we're going to look at a decision from the Supreme Court in relation to Green TD Patrick Costello's challenge to the EU-Canada trade deal. Obviously, this got a lot of attention in the media, but uh, we're going to look at the the legal aspects of it now. The case is Costello versus Government of Ireland, and in particular, you're focusing on the decision of Ms. Elizabeth Dunn uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, they all, uh, the, what was it, I four think, to three, was it? I think there were seven judgments, exactly. And yes. it was four to three decisions. So it was certainly a very controversial area. So, um, so she found that it was const- it was contrary to the constitutional obligation that justice must be administered by Irish courts. Am I right in that? Essentially, what happened here, this is the, the EU-Canada trade deal. So uh, the, the way that the, the, the deal operated was that each individual member state of the EU needs to ratify it. And the government in this case sought to ratify it almost by by a sort of a whipped vote. Um, and that wasn't acceptable, I think, to the Green Party that insisted it went through committee. And they identified a particular issue with what they call CETA tribunals. So CETA is the name of the, uh, of, the of the trade deal. And the, these are uh, international tribunals that deal with issues arising from, from the trade deal. And the problem here is that... If a Canadian company invests in Ireland and, for example, um, finds that they are not happy with, say, Irish environmental legislation, they can challenge the, the, the Irish government not only in Irish courts but also in these CETA tribunals. And under the trade deal, if an award or a decision is made by a CETA tribunal, that is directly enforceable in Ireland. So the suggestion was that a Canadian investor in Ireland can bypass the Irish courts to get a decision against the Irish government enforceable in Ireland. And so the issue that Patrick Costello brought to the Supreme Court ultimately was, um, having failed in the High Court, was, does this oust the jurisdiction of the Irish courts? And with the majority decision was that it did. That, so that there was obviously a lot of debate about that, though. Absolutely, and I mean, this is and the and the curious thing is, having decided that it wasn't um, that it, that it, that it ousted the jurisdiction of the Irish courts, then an issue arose, and friend of the show, Mr. Justice Hogan, um, gave a, a concurring judgment where he suggested that there is 
possibly a remedy available at Irish law if uh, the Arbitration Act is amended, which effectively says that if somebody wants to try and enforce an award of seat tribunal in yes. Ireland, that you can raise the defence that this particular award is either unconstitutional or contrary to EU law. Um, but that, but it's only kind of a complicated but, mechanism. But, but yeah, complicated. And, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the curious thing here. I mean, this is obviously very embarrassing for the Irish government, who want like to be seen as the best boys in class in the EU. But it does show that the Irish courts are in a position to challenge something that might ultimately turn out to be a long-term it's supportive damage. of the primacy of the Irish courts. Indeed. And that's that's what the Constitution says and exactly. the Supreme Court held yeah. that. Okay, yeah. really good, Mark. Very well explained. Okay, our second case is a criminal appeal involving a case of uh, dangerous driving, which went all the way up to the Supreme Court. This is a, a case called the Director of Public Prosecutions versus JD. It's a decision of Mr. Justice McMenamin. The appellant in this case had been driving dangerously, trying to evade the guardee. However, bizarrely, or maybe that's a little bit strong to say bizarrely, but unusually in this case, the accused had not been arrested and interviewed and found himself before the courts where he had to defend himself, etc. The trial judge felt that that was inappropriate and throughout the case gave a direction to the jury saying, do not prosecute. However, the the Supreme Court took a different view. Yeah, so... so Traditionally, um, the prosecution uh, had only one bite of the cherry, that if, if, if the trial failed at first instance, the, the, the prosecution couldn't appeal. There's now a provision whereby if the, pros- if the DPP feels that the trial judge wrongly uh, deemed evidence inadmissible, that then he can basically appeal it and, and a new trial can be directed. Now, in this case, the... The the accused sought to challenge the prosecution on the grounds that normally you get a chance by being arrested and interviewed by the guards to put forward your grounds of defence. And, and the trial judge said, I've never come across a case where somebody hasn't been arrested and interviewed and given a chance to explain. Therefore, this is an unfair trial. He, and he directed the jury to um, to, to, to But acquit. it is kind of bizarre, isn't it? It's unusual. But the point that was made by the Supreme Court was... Um, was essentially that um, that if you have a defence to put forward, well, that's what the trial is for. You don't, you you can't sort of say, oh, I wanted to be arrested, I wanted to be detained and interviewed. And I suppose the the, the corollary of this is that people who try to to to, to defend themselves based on what they said in the Garda in in the Garda station, sometimes they're able to do that by by allowing this material to go in before yes. the jury but not then be cross-examined on what they said. So it, it's an opportunity to put forward a defence that okay. you're not cross-examined so on. Clearly so, this is an approach by the DPP. Yeah. They're not happy with some of these high court decisions and they're willing to go well, all the way and yeah. in this case they were vindicated. Circuit court decision in this case. Yeah. Circuit yeah. court, of course, circuit yeah. court. Yeah, obviously it wasn't Central Criminal yeah. Court. Yeah. Yes. Okay, and finally our third case this evening. This is to do with succession law which is always very popular on this show. Uh, and this is whether a will has been revoked or not. Uh, it's a decision of Ms. Justice Nuala Butler, and the case is called In Re the, the Estate of John Coughlin. Uh, it's a High Court decision. Uh, and in this case, the deceased had made a will in 2012 and obviously was satisfied with what he had said and who was going to get what after he passed on. And then he made a new will in 2015. And in this case, he included a new beneficiary. But then he decided, "Mm, I don't know how I feel about that. And he ripped up the 2015 will. So the question was, do we go back to 
2012, or what's the story? Yeah, so as you said, 2012, Will, a new beneficiary is added in 2015, and then he rang his solicitor and said, or contacted his solicitor and said, actually, I've changed my mind, I don't want to add that beneficiary. And the solicitor told him, well, all you need to do is to tear up the will, and that will have the effect of revoking it. And that is one of these, it, it, there is a presumption that if a, if a testator destroys a will, that that has the effect of revoking it. But the problem is, it doesn't necessarily have the effect of reviving the previous will, because each will has a revocation clause in it to revoke, or it's standard to include revocation clause, revoking a previous will. But... In the Succession Act 1965, there is a specific provision that says that if you want to revive an, a, an old will, you have to do it by way of a codicil or some other mechanism in accordance with the Succession Act. So even though the revocation clause had been torn up with everything else in the 2015 will, it did not have the automatic effect of reviving the 2012 will. Um, and what about the notion of intention? I mean, obviously, in ripping up the will, his communication with the solicitor, it was clear that the deceased did not want somebody to be a beneficiary, and the court was aware of that. I think it, it, there's no doubt that this isn't an easy decision, um, but ultimately what Ms. Justice Butler said... She looked had, at the legislation. She looked at the legislation, which said that the only way to revive a revoked will is by way of a codicil executed in accordance with the Succession Act, and decided that it not only... Only um, had the 2012 will not been revived, but she said that the 2015 will had not been properly revoked. So the um, the, the, the beneficiary who was added and then excluded uh, had had the benefit. Okay, so the 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 the, mess, the moral of the story is: if you want to change your will, draft a new will. Don't just rip it up. Absolutely, yes, that's it. Okay, back shortly with Professor Ursula Kilkelly. Silence in the Fifth Court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio uh, Ursula Kilkelly, Professor of Cons well, Children's Rights Law, I think, Ursula, rights, Head yeah. of the School of Business and Law here in UCC. And I'm welcoming you, but you're welcoming us to your beautiful, beautiful campus. Yeah, it's great I know to Mark is going to get a bit. Mark is going to get a bit jealous now, but I think it is the most beautiful campus in Ireland. Without a doubt. And we are built on sustainability here. We have a real proud tradition of building for the future. So this is part of the campus um, experience is, is, is maintaining how, how our lovely campus Looks, so and it should also be said, we have with the use of the most impressive recording studio. I, did, I didn't realise universities didn't sort of uh, just record things on iPhones in sort of small, small sort of tutorial it's, rooms. It's, it's just fantastic. It's all good. It's yeah. all good. And just walking through the campus, Ursula. I mean, it's it's buzzing with students. I mean, there's so much activity and energy. It's COVID is gone. No more COVID. It's back to normal, isn't it? Well, we've had a really tough couple of years. Um, the university's been really um, challenged, I think, in that time. It's been really tough on the students and the staff, but we've thankfully come out of a really, really challenging couple of years where we've been here, hybrid, online, and, and now we're back. And it's wonderful to have the students in the campus again. And, and It must be and wonderful to have full lecture halls. Yeah, it's terrific. I mean, that's I mean, the natural order, isn't it? That's why we're here. We love it, and the students are really 
also delighted to be here. We were a bit nervous, I think, to be honest. It's a big step back for some who've not been here at all, even though they're coming into their third year. Right. So we really have to work very hard to support them to come to come back and to, I suppose, really appreciate the benefits of being here when some of the convenience and the flexibility so and, to be so honest, so the cost associated with it is a real issue for students. So we've we've really worked hard to um, to help them to make the most and of so it. So there's a whole generation of students that have completely missed out on the kind of college experience in terms of societies and sports and all that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, we have had graduations in, in, in the last few months of students who started and finished their, their studies during COVID who did, sure. met as a class at graduation. Right. So it's a huge yeah. loss yeah, no, for been, them. But It's but been a funny been, time, but hopefully we're back to normality again. Uh, School of Business and Law. Why, why business associated with law, Ursula? Well, it's a college of business and law, actually. So we oh, still have good. a school of law and, a, and Cork <laughs> University Business School. And I, I have um, responsibility for both schools. So we have uh, brilliant deans, uh, Mark Pousty, Dean of Law, and, and Thea Hennessy, Dean of, of Business here. So I work with Mark and Thea to, to um, ensure that the needs of our students are met and our research agendas is as ambitious as ever. So it's a really it's a great opportunity to, to lead at a senior level in the university. OK, well, as we said, you're head of the School of Law and you're professor of law here our School of Law and Business, our College of Law and Business. Um, so let's get a bit of a backstory. We love a little bit of biography on this show. So will you go back in time and tell us about Ursula Kilkelly? Where do you come from? I believe you're a Mayo woman. I am a Mayo woman, uh, born in Castlebar, County Mayo, and um, grew up there as a townie, um, very proud Castlebar woman, and um, had a large family. Um, very, very fortunate to have an incredibly um, supportive family around me. Uh, I'm one of seven uh, and I'm the youngest, in case you want to know. Um, and uh, and my my father um, is a shopkeeper on the main street. So we lived oh, wow. in the town and, and really were part of, of town life all the time I was growing up. And, and I was very busy um, in sport. I was a swimmer um, and um, music is a huge part of our lives as well. So it's really um, fantastic family background and supportive family. I still go back all the time. So it's really... And how um, did you end up in UCC? So what was your academic path to yeah, your current role? Interesting. I did a pretty average leaving cert, to be honest. And... Um, I certainly uh, didn't have a very successful CAO first time round, so I took a year out. I spent a bit of time abroad. Um, I really wanted to do something connected with Europe. I ended up doing European studies in, in UL. Really interesting French, German, history, sociology, kind of a liberal arts sort of degree. But law was a major in that degree. And that's how I kind of found my way into law, really. I don't think I'd ever have done it otherwise, to be honest. Uh, had a year in Germany afterwards, did my PhD in Queens where on children's rights. So I really um, developed um, an interest in human rights Um Lectured in Wales for a couple of years where really I was very, very well supported there too. And then um, was lucky enough to be appointed to a lectureship here in 1999 and became professor in 2011 and then in as head of law and then in as head of college. So I've been here for quite a while, but it's mm. a fantastic place to work. I have to say I love uh, and I love the academic background. It's a really interesting and diverse kind of role to have. It's really challenging, but you know, incredibly fortunate to be able to work with students and do the research that we do. And in terms of the current sort of law student experience, certainly when I was in college, you kind of either did law or you did something else. And as far as I can see now, it's much more common in all colleges to combine law with either business or language or whatever. What's the sort of the, the breakdown in UCC between pure law and law with other subjects? Uh, we still have a really strong interest in our primary law degree or three-year BCL, which um, the students then can have flexibility to take a year abroad or to do a placement. That's really, really popular. And sure. then we have our law and language degrees, which have always been really strong, particularly law and Irish and law and French. Uh, and then we have our relatively new law and business degree, which is, again, really popular. And I think um, students just like keeping their options open, but also I think those 
those who you know, it's it's a pathway for whoever whatever path you want to take it's there for you and and many students would go on to take um other routes out of law than the, the traditional professions i think you know it's really very different now and do, do you see a difference in terms of the kind of aspirations between the different subjects? I mean, if you're doing pure law, do you still see the majority of them, going, them becoming solicitors and barristers, whereas, say, the, the law and business ones are going into kind of in-house um, positions? Or can no, you, you generalise you, you like that? No, you can't really generalise. I mean, I think the, the in-house council is a really interesting route, and we see quite a few of our graduates in, the, in those roles now. And we see people going have gone on, just have gone to, to research and policy roles to uh, international diplomacy, working for government, civil society, and, and the professions are still as strong as ever. Um, primarily, of course, in, in the solicitor profession rather than in the bar, I think, for and obvious reasons. You know. When you say for obvious reasons, just because the, the, the solicitors That's, seem to be constantly struggling to find personnel at the moment, seems to be. Yeah, and I think and equally on the other side, and as we've heard from, from people like Catherine on, on the podcast, it's it's a challenging um, career at the bar. It's hard to, to make your way, and I think that's Tell the, us about the, 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 blunt, the blunt reality. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm curious, and I am curious about this, Ursula. As you said, you, you kind of came into law by the back door, but then you very much got involved. You did a PhD in children's rights in Queens, and we're going to talk a lot about children's rights as, as this interview progresses. But you've stayed in academia. You haven't gone down the route of being a barrister like myself and Mark here, or be a solicitor. You know, the role of the academic, and I know you feel very strongly about that, that the academic just doesn't stay in the ivory tower, must get out there in the big bad world as well. Yeah, I, I had a choice when I, um, the, actually the day I got my scholarship at Queen's to do my PhD, I also um, was um, given a place at King's Inns. And I remember my father asking me at the time, you know, what was the dilemma, dilemma how would be how would it be resolved? And for me, hands down was the PhD. I, I had really started to love research. And I think that was, that was the moment where I knew where I would end up. Um, but I think the, the, the life and the, the career of the modern academic, it's very challenging. Certainly at early career stages, it is very difficult to secure a position. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, to get on is, is as challenging as, as it would be anywhere. But I think for, for, um, somebody at, at an, a later stage, it's a really f- brilliant way to spend a career. It's a really diverse, um, portfolio of sort of teaching, research, Giving, giving back to the community. And I suppose from, from the law school here, we've always had a really proud tradition of social action and being part of, of the community, both the legal community and more widely. Um, and, and I think that's something that I picked up from an early stage or from my colleagues here, um, where we really are committed to, to the society that we're, we're part of and, and look to, to make sure that our research has, makes a difference. And, and how do you believe? Activist academic how do you model, believe? Really. Act, um, you know, academics should get involved. I mean, we do have colleagues in the law library who are also academics and are associated with universities. Uh, sometimes people feel that, you know, like the old expression, cobbler stick to your last, that maybe academics should stay in the university and leave practicing to, to others. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting combination. Um, I think we can all learn from each other. I don't think anybody has a monopoly on knowledge and um, certainly the, the mutual advantage of understanding how practice works, uh, understanding what the law and theory and what the research says. I think that those are really valid perspectives from whatever point of view you, you have. So I think the the real um, value, I suppose, is in, in being out in the world and understanding what your research means in practice. And obviously I have done that for all of my career and really see the benefit also to my students when I come into the classroom and I'm able to talk about how uh, children's rights is experienced on the ground in the different environments in which I work or, or where I'm advisor uh, at, a, at a national or international level. 
Okay, and, and let's focus now on, on children's rights. And in terms of you being involved in the wider world, you have been chairperson of Oberstown Detention School. Uh, first of all, let's just start generally in terms of children's rights. I mean, the proclamation famously said, we shall cherish the children of Ireland equally. I'm paraphrasing there, probably in- incorrect. But in the 1937 constitution, that phrase was left out and we've had a children's referendum. Are we good on children's rights, do you think, in Ireland? How do you feel about that? I think comparatively, we've done reasonably well. I've done a lot of work uh, internationally looking at how countries have represented children's rights in their constitutions, in their laws and in in policy. And I think uh, the the constitutional amendment, while something of a disappointment at one level, um, I don't think it went far enough. Um, It it squeaked through, which is another kind of disappointment, I think. Um, But nonetheless, it has given rise to greater awareness and understanding of the importance of putting children's rights into our law, particularly when we had such strong provision for the family. And there was certainly a clear sense that they were um, uh, contradictory, that there was there were challenges there. So I think we, we had to right that wrong, as it were, in, in putting children's rights into the Constitution. And we do see um, the impact of that, the awareness of it in practice, with judges listening more to children, taking seriously that the children have a right to be heard, that best interests must be part of, of the process when you're determining matters concerning children and giving rise to, to legislation and policy that really um, properly engages with children's rights. And to break down the, the, the referendum, I mean, essentially, it first of all said that it, I think it gave more power to the state to intervene where, where the, the family wasn't properly looking after the child, to put it in layperson's terms. They also said that the best interests of the child should be paramount in any proceedings concerning the child and that the voice of the child should be given due weight, I think. Isn't that right? Where do you feel that that didn't go far enough? I mean, you said that it was a bit of a disappointment. Well, in fact, what the constitutional amendment did was to give the authority to the legislature to legislate for those matters. It didn't actually constitutionalise those principles. So, in fact, the right to be heard is not a constitutional principle. It simply has, we have, we have given the legislature the mandate to legislate in that way. So that's, that's a mechanism that's used in other countries too, but it's not the same as giving uh, explicit rights of the child to be heard in the constitution. Where I think it is really positive is the open-ended clause where, where we do recognise that children are rights holders under the constitution. Uh, equivalent to the phrase that's in 40.3. And I think that was really positive. I'd have liked to have seen more substantive rights given to children in particular. I think given our history, and it's a live issue at the moment, I would like to have seen uh, the child's right to protection from harm given explicit protection. I think we have a lot to do in that space still. And I think certain other Does everybody not have protection from harm? I mean, how would you you give more protection from harm to a child? Well, I think calling it out as as an explicit right uh, would make a um, a real difference in terms of the profile of the right of the child. Do you mean more in terms of recognising the vulnerability of a child? Completely. And I think that's been proven. um, And again, giving also the authority to the state to give preeminence to the right of the child in that that area, vis-a-vis the rights of others. I think that that's um, where, where it's really important. Okay, and the Children Act that came in 2000, am I right? 2001. 2001. There are certain aspects of that that have yet to be implemented or enacted. Um, is it is it fit for purpose? Is it working 20 years on? Is, is, is it a good piece of legislation? The, the Children Act is actually all in force since 2007, although there were some pieces amended um, um, the year before. 
it's proven to be remarkably resilient as a piece of legislation. And I think overall, while there are some gaps um, and areas where we might want to keep looking at, and it is being reviewed at the moment, I think it has proven to be a very, uh, you know, I think a, a good um, modern framework for youth justice in Ireland for the treatment of children in conflict with the law. Um, some very progressive elements, I think, probably yet to be fully resourced. But I think we start to see in the transition of the system with with greater use of diversion from court, uh, with greater use of, of community sanctions and supports for children who who are found um, before the courts and equally then a really modern um, detention facility yes. for those for whom the ultimate sanction is is warranted. And that's Oberstown. And you have served as the chairperson of Oberstown. Are you still serving in that role? I am. OK. And what's that like? It's a huge um, privilege on the one hand. It's a really incredible opportunity for me to bring all of my knowledge to bear in a really practical way. Um, it's a very significant leadership role um, and and it's a very challenging um, role to be in. Um, it, it has been through its journey over the last number of years and where Pat Bergen and I, the former director, have written about that in our in our recent book. Yes. Um, it has been um, a real journey towards, I suppose, the, the question I would, um, where I would reflect on it is really in relation to um, translating policy into practice. It's, this is a story of, of how you implement policy. Uh, and that's really difficult um, because there are all sorts of different elements to the to the um, to the process that you can't always control. Um, what's interesting about Oberstone, I think, is we had the legislation, we had policy, uh, we had resources, um, and then it was really down to the leadership of Oberstone to bring all of those together to make this uh, a modern, uh, fit for purpose facility okay. for and, children. And is Oberstown under the um, the auspices of the Irish Prison Service or is it a completely different organisation? No, it's under the auspices of the Department of Children and um, and it always has been and, and in, in the modern era. And I think that's been really significant. The leadership, the fact that it fell, fell under the Department of Children was considered and is considered a children's facility has been very significant in the shaping of the facility in the mould of a, of a childcare service rather than a prison environment. And that child-centred uh, ethos has been really critical. That's in our legislations, in our policy. That's the expectation in the staffing, in the way it's resourced. All of that's really important. And so if a child is in Oberstown and they reach the age of 18, is it? I think they then transfer onto a prison under a, but they're still considered to be in detention rather than serving a sentence. Is that correct? They, that? they uh, move to transfer to the Irish Prison Service um, uh, 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 in around eight or 80, 18 and a half if if they've got longer and, sentences. And, and are you serve, happy with yeah. the with how the transition works between the two institutions? It, it's as good as it can be. We've worked really hard to support and prepare young people for that move. In, in one way, nothing will prepare them for that move because Oberstown is a very uh, different facility. It's very much centred on their care. They have, a, they have a voice, they have a right to, to participate in the decisions that are made about them while they're there. It's a hugely uh, well-resourced therapeutic environment, it's a huge amount of opportunity for vocational training and education. So it's it's very um, very rich and, and um, um, positive environment. Prison is, is, as you know, is a much more difficult adult-focused facility and um, and as I said, in, in some respects, nothing will prepare young people for that. Um, what we have to do yeah. under the youth justice strategy, I think, is really stretch our thinking in relation to the, the 18 plus and, and where that where that level of protection goes. You know. Isn't it the case under the, the, the Children Act that the director of Oberstown is acting in loco parentis That's for, right. for, for the children that are within his care? But And it's called a school and it's staffed by teachers, but it is also a detention facility. 
And, you know, in one way, is this a kind of a positive spin on it? Can you, can you, can you give us the distinction between the school and a prison? You know, other than the fact that the, the people that are there, the young people that are there are under the age of 18 years of age. The, the entire ethos is different. Um, you're right, we have, we have teachers. The staff are not prison staff, they're residential social care workers. Their backgrounds are in, uh, in childcare and child development. Um, it's a very um, well-resourced facility, so the number of care staff to young people is much higher than you'd see in a prison environment. Uh, there's more communal living than you would find in a prison. There's more, more uh, facilities, more, um, I think, a more structured environment. The young people go to school uh, every single day. Um, their days are full of activity and, and therapeutic programs and work on offending behaviour and so on. So it's a it's a very um, focused facility that that it really looks after their needs when they're assessed. They they, they come in when their 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 needs are assessed when they come in, and then they they really are placement planned through uh, okay, in cooperation good. with families as well. So that's another really significant okay. part there, of that. There have been a number of high court actions in relation to incidents that have occurred on Oberstown, and obviously there have been riots. They're well reported in the newspapers. Certain things have been set on fire. These things happen. And, and then it's the response of the, the school to these incidents and how they are managed. And there have been certain cases in the High Court and have gone beyond the High Court in relation to the children's human rights. Yeah. There have been times when they were isolated, for example, in order to try and bring calm to the situation. They, they, what, what do you make of those decisions? They've always re- generally been very favourable towards Oberstown. But, you know, the issue of human rights of the t- detained child... This has um, been uh, um, one of the challenges. How how do you make sure that these uh, rights are given effect? They're implemented appropriately in the detention environment. I mean, the the uh, the cases that you're talking about were were largely in 2017, which followed the instance since 2016. Um, and I think um, what I would say about that is. First of all, it was really important that children had access to justice. The children were able to hold Oberstein to account for their treatment. Uh, I think that's really important. And um, and secondly, for us, and certainly as the chair of the board, my responsibility was not not just to to see that through, but also to make sure we learned from that process. So I commissioned a review of the legal case so that the learning could be drawn out. And and if you look at cases that have that have been taken against us subsequently. Uh, we have been shown to respond to the learning that the, the Justice Hereafter in particular set out around the procedural safeguards, the reporting, as well as a better care. And our, our statistics in relation to the use of separation are a fraction of what they were back then. We've really looked to transform the environment, the okay. culture, the organisation. So it's a learning process that's and, really And important. how do we compare internationally? I mean, Ursula, you wear a number of hats. I know you're the, a visiting professor in the University of Leiden. Um, like, what is, what, how's our, how does Ireland perform in the area of juvenile detention when we compare ourselves with other states? Well, I think, thankfully, now we compare very favourably. Um, I think where other states really struggle is in relation to the older children. Many In many states, even the very progressive ones, those 16, 17-year-olds are in adult prison already. Um, and in, also, I think we, we are favourable in, in uh, having in Oberstown those all children under 18, regardless of what their offence in other jurisdictions, those children are separated out. The more serious offenders are separated out um, and don't receive the kind of child-centred care that we have. The numbers of, det- of children in detention are remarkably low here and they are falling all over the world. That's part of an international trend. 
And but that also, and the, the extent of the therapeutic environment that we have, again, is fairly unrivaled. I think the other piece that where we really stand out and something we talk about in our book is the extent to which we've oriented the sort of service that supports around young people themselves, uh, giving them a say in in the uh, the day to day in the running of their units. And this has been shown to really be important for them to realise the expectations on them, but also to learn that they can have they can have some control over what happens to them and they have a responsibility and, to respond and, to that then. And looking at it from the other direction, do you think the prison service itself could learn from the Oberstown experience? I mean, if, if somebody is imprisoned aged, say, 18, 19 or 20 and goes straight into an adult prison and they don't have the kind of pathway that you, you're discussing, do you think, I mean, they're, they're the same age as the, the people you're teaching every day. I mean, would they benefit from, from something similar to the Oberstown experience? Yeah, there's no no question, but that there are good lessons from from those who are 18, 19, and, that, and we see that in other countries where, with the more progressive countries, like the Netherlands is a good example, have um, a separate regime or separate um, system for 18 to 20, 24 year olds, and I think that's really where things are moving internationally. With diversion pushing the age of young people up in terms of their engagement with the justice system and and their likelihood of ending up in detention, so that that's the next phase of of development for Ireland really. Okay, well, and I should mention, your, your, one of your many publications, and you very kindly gave me a copy here, Advancing Children's Rights in Detention. And this is a book that you wrote with Pat Bergen, who I think has moved on now, but he was the director of Oberstown for a very long time. Okay, final question on children's rights. Roderick O'Gorman, I believe, is the Minister for Children in this country at the moment. Right. If you could sit him down in this small studio, what would you say? Roderick, would you do one thing? Is there one thing you'd say? I mean, maybe that's an unfair question. But no, is there I, anything that jumps out? At, well, at as, as a lawyer and in an area of work that I've been very heavily involved in over the last couple of years, and that's giving uh, full legal status to the Convention on the Rights of the Child in Irish Law. I think that okay. the research that we've done shows that makes a real difference, not just to law and policy, but also to children's lives and their experiences of their rights. So that would be my one ask. Wow. Okay. Okay, and we have a final question for you, which we ask all of our guests. Uh, do you have a, a book or a film or any other work of art of any sort that you would like to recommend to, and we normally say lawyers and law students, but of course the, the, to academic lawyers as well? Well, I have, I have a number actually, um, and I use these in my, in my teaching and my students will recognise them. One, one is um, the BAFTA award-winning documentary called Feltham Sings. Um, it's it's um, a, a, the story of um, uh, Feltham, a notorious young offender institution in, in London, um, where uh, the young people and the staff worked with the film crew to tell their stories, their hopes and their dreams for the future through rap. So oh, it's wow. a musical. Okay. It's is, a phenomenal. Is it, is it, can you do it, a little bit? It's on YouTube. Give us a little no. bit of a rhyme. No, I won't be doing <laughs> okay. that. Thank you for the offer. <laughs> the second thing I would, the second um, documentary I'd mention is called Kids for Cash. Um, it's the story of um, two judges who, um, uh, judicial corruption really in Pennsylvania, which led to uh, the wrongful conviction and the incarceration of uh, of thousands of young people um, and the story of Juvenile Law Centre, colleagues of mine in Philadelphia who uh, led the charge for, for justice and, and resulting in a class action and the um, imprisonment of the two judges on those charges. And, and this is where there are effectively private detention centres that right. benefit from the number of, that are going in. And, and interestingly, many of the children who were subject to those um, those those illegal detentions were, did not have lawyers in the process. So no protection there. 
Um, yeah, they're my two. I, I just as a work of, of, um, of How fiction. about a movie? I work Boys in the Hood. Movie, the Client. The Client. Oh, uh, well, okay. it's got to be The Client. You yeah. know, I think um, it's a great story, but it's also a wonderful uh, narrative of an 11-year-old boy and his lawyer, Re- Reggie Love, Susan Sarandon and, and Mark Sway, the boy, um, are just a fantastic combination. And there's a great scene at the start that I used to, to show students the, the different um, ways in which children can find access to justice. So that's that's that. And, then, and the one piece of fiction I would say uh, is uh, related to that is The Children Act by, by Ian McEwan, a fantastic story of a judge okay. really grappling with um, a really tough um, high court case while her own family falls apart. It's a fantastic Wonderful recommendations, Mark. Fantastic. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that'll keep us going for a couple and of I love, And I love the client. Nothing wrong with a bit of old-fashioned entertainment I as well, as well as a little bit of, you know, little bit of learning involved as well. Professor Ursula Kilkelly, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us on The Fifth Court today. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Professor Ursula Kilkelly, and thank her for her warm welcome that we received here in UCC, Mark? UCC, amazing campus, really we fantastic love recording studio. Yeah. yeah, no, really good, really good. And we were so well looked after, so it's been just such a, a positive uh, experience. Uh, and we'd also like to say a thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, um, and also to our colleagues up in Dublin, uh, in the Dublin South podcast studios, who are going to edit in the little bits that we, we need edited in. That's always very important in these podcasts. Uh, finally, our parting comment. If you have anything you'd like to raise with us, you'd like any stories covered, communicate with us. We're dying to hear, Mark, aren't we? We are indeed. We want to hear. We want to hear from you. Uh, and as always, please share. Share again. Please share. We're getting closer to Christmas. Indeed, yes. <laughs> not going to get that Christmas number one. Don't think we are, but we're, we live in hope. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.